Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Left, Right and Center. I'm Vishnu Shom. We are broadcasting live from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. It's a particularly challenging year for the World Economic Forum. There are wars taking place around the world. That is a key topic of discussion. There's also a great deal of economic uncertainty, certainly not in India per se, but around the world. That is also a key concern. I'll be joined on this program by the president of the World Economic Forum, Borger Brenda. But we'll also be talking about the India story over here in Davos with a special interview of key leaders of the Confederation of Indian Industry. That's just a small part of what we have. Do stay tuned to this very special program. Well, it is a particularly challenging World Economic Forum meet in Davos this year. There are multiple global challenges which are taking place. Challenges, for example, in the wars which are now taking place in Ukraine, which has been going on now for two years plus. Also in West Asia, uh, there are challenging economic circumstances as well. To talk a little bit about that, but also about several other key themes that the WEF is looking at this year. Borger Brenda, thank you very much for being with us. He is the president of the World Economic Forum. Thanks, sir. Uh, for speaking to us, um, the backdrop, the wars taking place. How is that a constant source of conversation over here? We've seen national security advisors meet on the sidelines as well. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So we had uh, 80 uh, national security advisors here in Davos yesterday, including the Indian uh, one, uh, looking at are there ways of ending the war in Ukraine, but then based on the UN Charter. It's not going to happen uh, next week, right? but I think uh, it's incredibly important that uh, we don't see further escalations of the wars that are ongoing. Ukraine, Gaza, and now we have a very difficult situation also in the Red Sea, as you know, with uh, the Houthis' attack uh, on all the ships that us is passing through one of the most uh, important uh, shipping routes in the world, also bringing oil and goods to India. Yes, absolutely. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, one of the things that the WEF has done is you keep coming up with uh, your own economic outlook. Um, if the Red Sea becomes even more tense, if international trade flows continue to suffer, what sort of macroeconomic scenario are we looking at? That would, of course, have a negative impact even on uh, the forecast we made for this year. We think that the global economy will grow with 2.9% this year. This is the third year we have to reduce the forecast. We're more optimistic on 2025. But our all worry is that any of these geopolitical conflicts can escalate and spread. And if we see major wars, we see trading routes being interrupted, if we see the oil price going dramatically up, that will also have very negative impact uh, on uh, economic growth. And even a very strong growing economy as uh, India, where we do think is going to grow with even more than 7% this year, if the oil prices spike and go up, of course, that's not uh, good news. That's why we have to handle all these conflicts and also make sure that uh, we revive uh, global growth back uh, to the level it used to be. You know, this 2.9% figure, we'll talk about India in a moment, but it is a cause of major concern because, you know, we are out of the pandemic now, but the economic consequences of the pandemic remain. Um, what are some of the key concerns economically that you see which are preventing a larger scale economic growth? So far, it has been uh, the sluggish growth in trade. So uh, trade used to grow much faster than the global economy. Even when the global economy was growing around 38 
trade was growing faster. Last year, we had 3% global growth and 0.8% trade growth. This year, we are expecting that uh, trade will pick up, maybe even more than the global growth. Maybe trade 3%, the global growth around 2.9. So that is a positive thing. We also have to say that we were very worried about the recession in the U.S., the largest economy in the world, 25% of the global GDP. But it seems like the U.S. is going into um, a kind of soft landing that will have very positive uh, implications. Uh, India is the fastest growing of the large economies. And uh, also, it seems like uh, China in the fourth quarter picked up a bit. So I think that the Chinese economy will grow maybe uh, 5% this year. That will also, because of the size, is 20% of the global yeah. economy. It will also have positive impact on the other economies. So that's a win-win thinking. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about India, uh, Mr. Brenda. Um, it is a global outlier in a sense. Uh, and the numbers, whether it's the World Bank, whether it's you or the IMF, continue to be very positive. Uh, where do you see the India growth story? So um, as I think I mentioned to you last time we met, I see it as a snowball. Right. The snowball effect. So if you look at one of the mountains the behind here, you can start with a very small one. And if you then push it down and it starts to roll, it goes faster and it gets bigger and bigger. Right. So I think what India is seeing now is like uh, uh, exponential right. growth. So the Indian economy is around $3 trillion U.S. dollars yeah. today. We do expect if things continue with reforms that uh, there is also peace and uh, no conflicts and uh, there is transparency, there is uh, a fight against red tape. Uh, investments in R&D and infrastructure. We think the Indian economy can end up like a 10 trillion US dollar economy, maybe in a decade. A decade or so. That's an important statement coming from you. What are some of the key drivers, do you believe, uh, that we may see in the Indian economy, if you haven't seen already, which could actually push India up to that level with sectors? So uh, what is working in the interest of uh, India today is that if you look at global trade, uh, digital trade is today only 15%, but the digital trade grows twice as fast as the other trade areas like traditional goods. And China, uh, and, uh, China is the traditional goods producer, while, China, while India is the producer of services and digital trade yes. and e-commerce. And also services is growing faster than goods. So India is positioned in areas where the demand uh, grows faster than in other areas. So India is capitalizing on this. So, uh, of course, uh, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Yep. India has to continue with the reforms that we have seen uh, during the last years. They have to even intensify yep. to become uh, a 10 trillion US uh, dollars economy if it happens in 10 years or 15 years. It is just uh, a fact that India is uh, an uh, incredibly successful economy for the time being. You know, I noticed what you said earlier on. You said that, you know, for all of these predictions, there needs to be peace in the area. Are you concerned about tensions ongoing between India and China? I think we're all following uh, that uh, very closely, uh, the border. But I don't think there is any interest on either the Chinese or the Indian side uh, to escalate that because that would be uh, extremely unfortunate, extremely unfortunate. Mr. Brenda, one of the most um, interesting themes uh, to me, and I think so many uh, at WEF this year, is artificial intelligence uh, and linked to economic opportunities. 
how would you respond to those who say that no 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 one second let's take a step back we're going to be losing jobs because of ai short term maybe some jobs have to be pivoted but overall i think if you are not part of the ai and internet of things and big data and machine learning you will lose competitiveness we do expect that ai will increase global productivity with almost um, 30% in the coming decade. That means that jobs that are done by people today can be replaced uh, by AI. But that is also the historic development. You know, in Switzerland here, 100 years ago, 95% of the population worked in the agriculture sector. Today, it's 3% and they produce much more food. But all those farmers do have other jobs now that pay better. So they moved up in the value chain. That's why Switzerland is also so rich. So, for example, for India, of course, it will replace some jobs that are already there. But then you can move those people into higher productivity roles, and then you can increase also the welfare, and then you can also eradicate poverty. But short term, it can create some challenges, and people will say, oh, it's killing my job. But, you know, if you can then uh, not be in the back office, but you can then have a job that is better paid uh, in the future, you have to also have good nerves, good nerves to be successful. Sustainable growth, another key theme. We've seen the outcomes of COP. Um, there's a sense of hope, but then there is also the realization that people like to talk and whether they'd be actually able to, de to, to, to deliver to ensure that we can uh, keep global warming to under 1.5 degrees. How is that, again, a key theme at WEF this year? It's critical because what we're seeing now is really climate change happening on the ground. Many countries we're seeing is having negative impact on food production, uh, water and uh, livelihood. And uh, I think India is one of those countries that uh, really can feel this yes. heat uh, in the summer. There's more electricity now used uh, globally uh, on air conditioning than warming uh, up houses. But we're not on track because last year we should have reduced the global emissions uh, by 7%. Do you know that we increased them with 1.5%? So we really need to hear also in Davos now discuss how to walk the talk because there is a lot of nice talk, but we really, really need uh, companies, governments now to introduce the new technologies that can also enable this mitigation of greenhouse gases. Is that perhaps the biggest problem that, you know, we've got the technologies already? Uh, green hydrogen, for example, is very much the future, but to actually bring it down to a cost that works, uh, A is problematic. Look at electro, uh, electric vehicles around the world. The cost of batteries is still very, very expensive. It's not mass use, at least not in many parts of the world. Is that your body, the cost associated with sustainability? It is. Uh, and there is like a green premium. And that green premium has to go away. We've seen it already on solar and wind. Solar used to be 10 times more expensive 10 years ago. Yeah. And today is very competitive. But those uh, breakthroughs have to happen also in other fields, like green hydrogen. Mm -hmm. We also know fusion nuclear. Mm -hmm. How to capture, at least as a bridge, CO2 from the uh, air or capture CO2 from coal-fired power plant and then uh, inject it uh, into reservoirs. So we cannot move from a fossil fuel-based society one day to a totally uh, renewable one in another uh, day. We need to build those bridges. And currently, there are very few bridges. The bridges are solar, it's wind, it's nuclear, it's a little bit carbon capture and storage, but it's far too expensive. 
So for the companies then capturing it, they pay too much of a price, and that's why you have to scale it up. It has to be the big investments in making these technologies then also feasible, like we did with solar. One final question, and I can't let you go before you answer this. How would you respond to those who say that Davos, but Davos is a talk shop for the rich and the powerful? How does it represent the interests of the large mass? How would you respond to that? So my response is that uh, what we lack today, uh, and that's what we started it, is trust and cooperation. Most uh, pressing challenges are transboundary, be climate change, being uh, then cyber attacks, being future uh, pandemics. Uh, and if you're going to deal with this, we have to talk. We also have to collaborate um, you know, uh, beyond borders. And then we need to have business on board, civil society, governments. And I think there is no other place where all of them are gathered. And I think the spirit of Davos is that let's try to identify the areas where we can collaborate even in the fractured world. So that's what we try to deliver. Wonderful, Mr. Brenda. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Well, there you have it, Borgo Brenda, speaking about so many issues, the macroeconomic situation, the wars taking place, uh, artificial intelligence and employment, sustainability, uh, and how the world really needs to come together and conversations such as what we see over here at the WEF are absolutely critical. The World Economic Forum is an occasion for topics to take place across the board. We're talking about artificial intelligence, the state of the global economy, the wars which are being fought in so many parts of the world. But healthcare is a topic which the WEF has looked at very, very closely. Dr. Sham Bishan, who joins me now, heads at the Center for Health and Healthcare at the World Economic Forum. Thanks very much, sir, for being with us. You know, one of the key themes that uh, you are looking at this time is bad bugs, no drugs, and a world without antibiotics. And that's so critical. Could you share with us a basic understanding of how superbugs represent a huge threat? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me on your show, uh, Vishnu. Uh, antimicrobial resistance has become a huge problem. Right now, it's one of the biggest killers uh, for human beings. Uh, close to 1.3 million people die every year from AMR, antimicrobial resistance. Uh, we expect that this would be much higher as we move forward. Actually, according to some of the predictions from WHO, World Health Organization, by 2050, if we don't do anything, there will be 10 million deaths every year. So that's a huge number of lives lost because of AMR. Economic cost is also predicted to be much higher. By 2050, we are looking at accumulated loss of $100 trillion. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge impact both on our lives as well as on economy. Yeah. Um, World Economic Forum has launched an initiative. Actually, it's a global future council where we are working on, we are working on some of the development uh, areas for this. You know, we are working with uh, G7, G20 uh, groups of governments. Uh, I was just there in uh, Rome last week mm -hmm. meeting with the Italian health minister to discuss this issue. I was so glad to see that G20 has taken uh, AMR as one of the three key health agenda for this year under the presidency of Italian government. Yeah. Um, because this is an issue that must be tackled now, must be handled now. Sure. And government, public sector has a big part to play in this. Of course, we will work with private sector. Sure. We will work with pharmaceutical companies. 
uh, to develop proper drugs uh, that are effective against uh, resistance uh, yeah. bacteria. Yeah. But public sector has a big part to play here. But it's a basic question. You know, we've uh, made so much progress in uh, in the pharma industry across the board. Uh, just look at COVID and the fact that we were able to roll out vaccines in a record period of time. Yes. Is there a lack of research uh, in developing a new generation of antibiotics against superbugs? Yes, there is a lack of research. Why is this, that? It's a lack of incentives. Uh, this is a slow-moving thing. It's not like a pandemic that's here and now and you need to respond to that. So the government and the public and private sector, uh, they don't uh, realize this as a huge issue right now. It's something that's slowly developing and it's coming over a period of time. I think there are a lack of incentives for uh, biotech and pharma companies to develop these drugs. Uh, there needs, needs to be both pull and push incentives for this. Uh, now there are organizations like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, Welcome Trust, non-profit organizations, uh, Novo Nordisk Foundation, who are putting emphasis on this. They are catalyzing research. They are putting some funding behind it. But we need to do more. We need to make sure that governments are putting some incentives behind this. We need grants. We need some kind of funding for R&D but also for pharma companies to recoup their investment, to get a good ROI, they need to make sure that there is a good market out there. Sure. And that's where I think the governments can come in and they, they can put in some kind of advanced market commitment they, so that that shows an incentive for a pharma company to develop this drug. Yeah. As you know, the drug development is a long process, expensive process. There must be a good return on that investment for pharma companies and biotech companies to get really interested in this. So there is definitely a need to do more in that area. Why are super drugs, uh, uh, I mean these drugs, super bugs I should say, uh, very frequently hospital born? Yes, because you see all kinds of pathogens, viruses, uh, they are existing there for a longer period mm -hmm. of time that develop resistant to bacteria which is really dangerous for you know people going to the hospital obviously it causes more mortality because you can't treat superbugs mm -hmm. it uh, extends hospital stay mm. it increases overall health cost but i think over a period of time it big you know hospitals can act as an incubator for pathogens and for viruses and uh, for microbes to develop long term uh, resistance Dr. Bishan, in India, we have a nasty habit of popping antibiotics like they were candy. Yeah. Getting better all of a sudden, ending a course in, in, uh, uh, after popping one tablet yeah. and then moving away. How is this part of the problem? This is a huge part of the problem. We call it a bad stewardship. If there is such a thing, you know, I think all of us working in the healthcare arena, especially uh, our physicians, our doctors, have to do a better job. Uh, first of all, not prescribing antibiotics where it's not needed. Secondly, making sure that they educate their patients. The public has the education that longer-term use of antibiotics is going to, uh, going to be bad for them. Mm -hmm. it's good. They are going to develop resistance to those antibiotics, and then they will be sick for a much longer period of time. Worse, they could die. So I think there, need, there needs to be a good education uh, for public. It's a good education program. But, you know, it's not just coming from uh, our use of antibiotics. It's also coming from use in agriculture, especially for animals that we eat. Uh, so uh, from the agriculture industry for, uh, you know, for uh, chicken, for poultry, for fish, for uh, cattle and other, uh, other uh, animals, there is a huge use of antibiotics. 
actually 70% of the antibiotics are being used in the animal industry, right. in the agriculture industry. And they find their way to our food system. They find their way to our uh, overall, our bodies, our health system. And that's creating a lot of problems. Yeah. That is a big contributor to the AMR problem that we are having. So in the interim period, is multi-drug therapy, multi-antibiotic treatment the only way to fight superbugs, as it were? And it's a hit and a miss, isn't it? It is a hit and a miss, but unfortunately, we don't have a, a super drug that can work against super uh, bugs. So at this point, uh, I would say that yes, you know, a, a multi-antibiotic therapy is the is the only way. You know, and you see that in case of tuberculosis, we use once you get a drug-resistant TB, we use so many antibiotics to uh, tackle that, um, which in itself creates problem, you know, because right. over a period of time, then again, those antibiotics, they stop working. Yeah. And then you can get into XTR, TB, which is like nothing works. Right. Um, so we don't want to go back to those uh, dark cases where there were no antibiotics and simple infections used to ki kill human beings. Yeah. Ur urinary tract infection, simple infections to die of that because there were no antibiotics. Right. So we must uh, do a lot, much more to stop this uh, emergence of new uh, super uh, bugs uh, and they are evolving and they are evolving that's the one they are evolving right? exactly exactly they are evolving so more incentives more uh, funding needs to be put in uh, in terms of R&D yeah and then on, on the other side as you mentioned we want to make sure that uh, we do our part with a good stewardship so that we are not misusing antibiotics whether it's in our agriculture or it's in our own uh, therapy Dr. Bishan one last uh, set of questions you know, we've been very closely associated with Banega Swast India for 10 years. Yeah. And among the many things that we've looked at is basic hygiene. Um, how is basic hygiene across the world uh, absolutely critical in improving the quality of lives of billions? And the number is billions. Yes, yes. No, uh, basic hygiene is absolutely critical here. That's, uh, that is a must. And we must educate the public on, the, on, the, on that front. We saw that during COVID, during the pandemic time, how important that was. You, we must wash our hands at least 30 to 60 seconds with an antibacterial or antimicrobial soap. It takes time, so we have to make sure that we are using soap, we are using it properly, we are using it at least 30 to 60 seconds, but basic hygiene, making sure that you are staying in a clean environment, keeping it clean, and then you wash your hands as often as possible with antibacterial soap. That is absolutely critical. That's one way you can avoid ingesting pathogens, bringing uh, viruses to your own body system. Thank you very much. Uh, that is critical indeed. Thanks, uh, Dr. Bishan, very much uh, for speaking to us. Uh, a broad-ranging conversation, but the conversation on antibiotics and a new generation of antibiotics, where is the funding going to come from? Where is the science going to become, uh, is going to come from? Where is it, what about the role of governments? Absolutely critical as we move to fighting next generation ailments. It is a constant concern. For years, the World Economic Forum meet here in Davos, Switzerland has been thought to be a collection of some of the wealthiest, richest individuals anywhere in the world. Um, essentially, uh, a talk shop for those who are wealthy, while there is an entire planet of those who do not have the same resources. Is that necessarily correct? 
Um, is there no space uh, for the rich to speak? But is there a balance which can also be found? That's something that we at NDTV have been working hard to figure out for years and years of coming over here. We've got a wonderful guest with us, uh, Amitabh Behar with us. He's the executive director of Oxfam. And Oxfam's presence and Amitabh's presence over here at the World Economic Forum is interesting because every year, without fail, Oxfam comes out with the World Inequality Report. It's called Inequality Inc. this time around, where they talk about how the rich are getting richer, while the poor are, in many cases, remaining poor or even getting more poor. The statistics are striking. Thanks very much, Amitabh, for being with us. Now, in your report, you say that the wealth of the world's five richest has doubled since 2020, and five billion have become poorer in the same period. Can you explain the corollary? So, this itself is startling. When you're looking at uh, five richest becoming uh, adding the same amount to their wealth, they're doubling their wealth. On the other hand, you have 5 billion people mm -hmm. becoming poorer. But let me start with a the prediction. Trump. Oxfam is willing to make a prediction. Trillionaire, right? Though sad me that we will have a trillionaire within a decade, whereas we need 230 years to end poverty. So that's, that's what we're looking at, this obscene inequality. It's, 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 it's really heart-wrenching that you have this... Um, in the last three years, since 2020, uh, we're calling it now the decade of divisions. Right. Uh, the billionaires have added 3 trillion. And on the other hand, there are 800 million plus people who are sleeping hungry. But Amitabh, let me ask you this. The billionaires that you speak about also employ millions of people around the world. Uh, so in as much as there is inequality in, 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 in currency terms, dollar terms, euro terms, there is employment generation as well. Sure, but that's precisely why we talk of uh, the inequality. As in, if you have uh, billionaires adding wealth, whereas 800 million people, again, I was talking of people who are sleeping hungry, but 800 million people are not being able to keep their wages uh, in line with the inflation. So they're actually becoming poorer. The question is, again, another very critical statistics that we have, that... Of the top 10 corporations, um, you have 80% uh, of all the profits going only to uh, their shareholders. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's, you know, in these times where you have a cost of living crisis, mm -hmm. where, where you have inflation, why do you need 80% of the profits going to the shareholders? Why can't you really? Do what we're and in many cases, the shareholders can't even use money of that uh, magnitude. They can't. They probably don't know that they're so getting you, more you, money. You, you, you've suggested a, a wealth tax. Yes, as one solution. Yeah, many solutions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What would that? Uh, what would that do? So wealth taxes, you know, it's it's fairly clear. Uh, if you look at all data across, and and on this, there's reasonable amount of agreement that if you invest resources in public services mm -hmm. like education, health, drinking water. Mm -hmm public transport, it leads to a more equal society. And that's that's what we need resources for. Mm. Uh, and, and wealth tax has been around for a while. Uh, and, and that's something that the government must essentially do. And let, let me just, you know, because you're talking of taxes, uh, last year, and these are startling figures, $1 trillion uh, were taken away to tax havens of foreign profits. Right. Just imagine what this could have done. Mm. This would have really meant, you know, every dollar is about 
one lesser school teacher or a one lesser uh, nurse mm. in a hospital. You know, I found one interesting statistic. Uh, in your report, you write, it would take 1,200 years for a woman working in the health and social sector to earn what the average CEO uh, in the biggest 100 fortune companies earns in a year. Um, and and that, that's such a tragedy because, you know, there's nothing more than health and the social sector. And there is such disparity in salaries. If this is really a trade-off between teachers, nurses, health workers on the one hand, and billions more to the super rich already, I think it should be a given. So, so what we really need is taking back power to reign in the corporates and ensure that everybody gets a living wage. So your um, uh, agenda or your, your belief is social equality and not necessarily one which comes through a free market economy. So this is not really a free market economy. You're looking at monopolies. 40% of the seed market is controlled by two companies. Hmm. 25 years ago, you had 60 large pharma companies. That's come down to 10. So they're, they're pretty much deciding, as in we know what uh, monopolies in seed could do. Hmm. What we eat, if that's also decided by corporates, hmm. there's a problem. Taxes in the 80s in OECD countries we have now half those taxes, right? the corporate taxes. Right. So even within this framework of the liberal framework that we are talking of, I think uh, there have been enormous distortions and it's really about addressing those distortions. Mm -hmm. e even an IMF and the World Bank are saying that these monopolies are bad for economy, bad for politics, bad for policy. So, so that has to change. A final question, global poverty remains at pre-pandemic level. We, we, we still have not gone beyond the pandemic as yet, while global wealth has, has supercharged. That's, that's disappointing that the, the, the path to recovery uh, to meaningful income for billions around the world has not happened even a couple of years after the worst of the pandemic. Yes, it is disappointing. And that's the question we must ask. What is its role? As in, is it just a talk shop, as you said? Or is it here for some substantive action? That's, that's really a historic choice that people who come here at FIFT need to make. And, and, and how do they look at you? And, and, and what do you speak about when they, when they openly endorse in many cases? Well, not just that, they do a lot more. But you know, there, there are people over here who openly endorse wealth and wealth creation. And, and, and yeah, you're, you know, you're, talking, you're looking at the, at, at, at the prism of development from an entirely different standpoint. So I, I hope they see us as uh, critical friends who are asking tough questions, but the right questions. But let me also say, we work with the patriotic millionaires. Globally, a whole range of millionaires are saying, please tax us more. Right. You have uh, the Mondragon in Spain, a cooperative. Uh, because of their work there, that province in Spain has lower inequality than even Finland. Mm. You have this large garment, um, uh, it's called, Pen I, I forget the name, but, but they have um, uh, transferred all their shares yeah. uh, to a trust saying that our stakeholder is Mother Earth. Right. So I would say that there are enough people who understand at this juncture these levels of obscene inequalities cannot continue. Right. It's, it's, it's going to disrupt societies. It's going to disrupt quality. And that's what we're seeing across the world. So, so that needs to fundamentally change, even for the stability of the markets and countries, 
we cannot continue with this obscene inequality. Amitabh Behar, thanks very much for sharing that data with us. So, Amitabh Behar talking about uh, the fundamental uh, disparity which exists between the rich and the poor, the fact that uh, COVID may be over, uh, at least in what was a reality a couple of years back, but pre-COVID levels of poverty continue and the disparity only shows signs of increasing. It's time now for us to take a short break. Many more special interviews coming up right here on the special episode of Left, Right and Center from the World Economic Forum meet in Davos, Switzerland. The India story at the World Economic Forum in Davos has always been an extremely positive story for the last several years. Certainly, India has been an outlier to global growth. Uh, the expectations of the Indian economy doing really, really well uh, is something which uh, is uh, certainly a, uh, a matter of conversation, not only at the World Economic Forum, but uh, also on the sidelines. The India promenade this time around is a mini India as always. But what are India's expectations of Davos? That's what we're looking at in this very special session with the Confederation of uh, Indian Industry. I'd like to introduce uh, my panelists, Mr. Ardhanesh. Thanks very much for being with us. President CII, Chairperson of TVS Supply Chain Solutions, Rajiv Mimani on my left, Vice President of CII and Chair India Region and Chairman Emerging Markets Committee, ENY, and Mr. Chandrajit Banerjee, familiar face, uh, Director General of the Confederation of Indian in Industry. Let me come to you first, Mr. Dinesh. Um, in as much as there are wonderful themes that the WEF is looking at, whether it's artificial intelligence or sustainable uh, growth, there is a sense that uh, of concern, isn't there? Um, there are wars which are taking place, a potential expansion of this conflict. There's a situation in the Red Sea. Do you believe that this is one of the big themes this time around? I think if you look at it, one of the themes which uh, WEF itself has chosen is rebuilding trust. Right. And I think that reflects on the geopolitical situation, which, I mean, started maybe with one, and then you had two, and then you have three. So if you look at it from India's context and from Indian industry context, mm. I think these are obviously things which we continue to watch out for, because they do have an impact now we are in integrated global economy. But having said that, I think it also places, I would call it an extra responsibility on India to be that partner who actually lives or lives up to and secures that trust, both from a commercial point of view and both from the way in which both strategically and geopolitically we deal with certain issues. Yeah. So as far as from Indian industry and CIA is concerned, I think the core focus is to be able to make sure that we continue to, be, uh, I would call it, be globally integrated, but at the same time be the preferred partner when it comes to the trust in the relationship. Right. You know, India is an outlier. Mr. Mimani, to uh, what we are seeing, the uh, WEF is saying that globally 2.9% is all that they're looking at in terms of global growth. Um, could you share with us the optimism that you sort of sense in the World Economic Forum, people you're talking to, the fact that there is such huge India representation here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's early to say we've just started meeting a few people. Uh, but in whatever meetings that we've had, and as a preparation to this, uh, for the meetings that have been set up, I think the uh, India story really stands out. Uh, one is obviously the numbers and the uh, which is there, but I think there are two or three things uh, that are equally important. The first, I think, is how government has now clearly laid down policy frameworks. 
earlier which were impediments but pol policy frameworks for almost each of the sectors. Mm -hmm. And the strategy is very clear, where India wants to go on AI, on data, <clears throat> on green energy, on sustainability, uh, I think that piece is very clear. So I think the more we can communicate that, and I think as people get a better sense of that, uh, that is very important. The second is the resilience in the economy, whether it's the macroeconomic fundamentals, uh, you look at the tax revenue collections that have happened, you look at the GDP growth, I think consistently every statistic that was laid out for the growth, I think we've outperformed that. So overall, the growth, the future potential, and the uh, policy platform that's been laid out, I think that's been very positive. The resilience part is very positive. And in some areas, especially like green energy and sustainability, uh, the amount of investments that is coming, uh, you know, almost $300 billion plus of investments, a lot of the part, I mean, driven by, a lot driven by Indian businesses, Indian public sector companies, but in a way, capital coming and, and some of the technology coming from around the world. So how that story is articulated, and a lot of the Indian seminar sessions, including what CII is doing, a few of them, is about green energy transition, green energy. And the second thing, if you look, walk around the promenade, it's AI, AI, AI it is, everywhere. Is, yeah. The AI house that's got created. So there's a lot of excitement around AI and how government and policy makers react yeah. to that. You know, Mr. Banerjee, you've been here for years and years. Um, this has become a mini India, this promenade. Does that really translate into to business or investment in India and states? I ask this because, for example, there are three states over here, uh, Telangana, Maharashtra, and Tamil Nadu as well. Um, and investment in India, how much does Davos attract investment? Davos, uh, well, it's in a, a couple of parts. You see, number one, uh, as what Rajiv and Dinesh were mentioning, we talk about uh, the progress every year as to how what, what we have done from what we were last year. That's one. Second, if you see in the promenade, you talked about India, but you also see some Indian companies featuring very strongly, specific companies, and some of them, you see the number of companies also in the promenade from India are growing. So obviously, they are, uh, they are being able to uh, uh, have global connects. The third part is states over here obviously are here to attract more investments and to talk about uh, the next story of india is really in the states of india and if you really see how the states are reforming the states are attracting investments how the states states are being able to invest on infrastructure what type of opportunities the states give for participation of the globe into uh, its its story of development uh, be it in infrastructure and, uh, and beyond uh, that itself attracts a lot of investment. And also, we see many of uh, the good stories of the states in terms of when we look at a subject like AI or really education, say, for instance, uh, how it is also partnered, uh, partnered with the globe. And much of it is, many of it has come from uh, their interface, their, uh, their deliberations in, in Davos. So, so I think uh, the entire India story, if it has got to be seen, it's got to be seen in three parts. One is the overall India, which is a phenomenal, magnificent story that we have been able to curate over the last few years yeah. to say what the type of progress India has made on, on many of the sectors just talked about. The second is to how that has percolated down to the states, and the states have really taken it, taken it on. And the third, the Indian companies, who itself are being able to get connected very strongly. I think that these three pieces are moving brilliantly in the promenade. Let's talk a little bit, uh, Mr. Dinesh, about artificial intelligence and, uh, and employment generation. There are lots of worries saying employment generation, jobs are going to go. What are you generating? What's the response to that? 
No, I think it's, uh, I would call it the reverse way of looking at it would be what kind of new jobs is artificial intelligence going to generate. And if you look at, I think there is the, I would call it the digital, uh, I would call it leadership, which India has established, actually leads us to use AI in a more smarter and a better manner to make businesses, I would call it uh, more uh, focused on delivering the right value mm. and the right solutions. That's A. Mm. B, that does again present a unique opportunity for India and Indian companies to take the lead in the way in which AI is used. And I think if you saw in the B20 outcome, we were speaking about how responsible AI is going to be in yeah. terms of delivering value. And I think, uh, I mean, obviously there can be for everything, there can be a negative. Yeah. But I think the positive way to look at it would be how do we create value? How do we create a new set of skills, mm -hmm. a new set of capabilities where India can take the lead, like we have taken the lead in terms of the digital infrastructure and the digital data, which I think has thrown up uh, different solutions for that. Yeah. And the last bit is, as we speak about the skill development and the ability for AI to be harnessed in a responsible manner, let us also not forget it applies both to private sector and to the government. And I think India has really stood out, or the Indian government has really stood out in terms of their ability to create what I would call as the public good in using each of these digital uh, capabilities. So there in artificial intelligence also, I'm fairly confident that we will take the lead there. Mr. Vimani, how do you look at it? You know, when we have conversations nowadays about AI, there's a lot of interest, but nobody really knows where it's headed. If we speak about it from, you know, from economies or companies, uh, you know, if you, if you were to look into a, if you were to crystal gaze into the future, uh, how is it literally, how is it really going to, to impact all of us? Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to say, but uh, just adding to what uh, Dinesh was saying, uh, the overall, uh, we did an analysis, uh, and in our view, in the next eight to nine years, the positive impact, if India, you know, also these, a lot of these things depend on how a, a technology evolves, uh, the incremental impact on the economy, if you were to adopt AI properly, could, could be in the range of 800 billion to a trillion dollars. So the, the, the efficiency impact, the new services, the new opportunities that one can create are very, very significant. Now, having said that, it's an evolving technology. There, is, there are regulatory aspects of that, which we discussed. But even when you try and execute it, when we did the survey, 60% of the Indian companies felt that AI will have a big impact on their business. Yeah. But 80% of them felt that they still don't know how to deal with it. There are issues around... Uh, data privacy that they're worried about because once they put something out, you know, how much, where does it travel? Uh, you need massive amount of data. If you want to run your all own ALMs, you need massive amount of data that, that is there. The ability of building use cases and also it's expensive mm -hmm. because it consumes massive amount of energy. The intellectual property is with a few companies and they're pricing it. So how do you make used cases where the economic benefit is there? Mm -hmm. So those, and then obviously availability of skilled talent and organizations. Uh, how do organizations skill, reskill themselves, identify these use cases, and then go ahead? So a lot of uh, uh, we can see a lot of progress uh, that Indian companies are going, but are going through. But it'll it'll take time. It is sure. not something. It has definitely captured the imagination. It def people, most people know that it'll have an impact. How much? What? What's the time frame and how do you do that in a nuanced way is how corporates are looking at. And the, <clears throat> the governments are also progressing in a very similar way. Right, yeah. You know, the other key uh, theme over here is sustainable economic growth. 
um, you know, we've set out what our, our goals are, what our challenges are, et cetera, et cetera. One of the biggest challenges, not only from an India standpoint, but globally, is bringing down the cost of key technologies, uh, whether it's green hydrogen or the next generation of batteries. EVs, for example, are not for the common person. They're extremely expensive even now. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on this theme as far as India is concerned? So we see, number one, we see Indian targets uh, 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 to be pretty much uh, feasible. Uh, uh, we are seeing good headway towards those targets and when we talk about uh, by 2030. See, we have been very practical in our approach. And if I would say we are looking at public transport, we are looking at, uh, uh, so when you talk about affordable transport, you see that if you really look at EVs in terms of buses, in, in the last mile connectivity, etc. We see that's, that's coming up very fast. Second, even uh, I would... Uh, uh, think that even if you really look at the automobile sector, there is, uh, there is uh, pretty much of breakthroughs there to see how we are seeing more and more affordable uh, sort of EVs coming up. Uh, uh, and even uh, uh, if you look at uh, uh, two-wheelers. Uh, so it's, 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 it's something where we are moving faster than what our targets have been. And, right. and uh, uh, when we, uh, we have uh, a strong India sessions on uh, green hydrogen that yeah. we are also working on over here. And we see the global sort of connectivity again, which we will leverage uh, in Davos when we really look at the entire space of green, the entire space of not just the future of mobility, but when we really look at uh, the energy transition piece, when we are looking at even green, where India has done so very, uh, so very well in terms of our targets of net zeros of both the hard to abate sector, some of them uh, uh, doing even companies as well as sectors doing well. I think this entire piece of India in, uh, is, is, is a strong story, and there is huge global opportunities, and we are over here to see how there can be much more global participation uh, in India uh, for, uh, with, with the targets that we have, both for our cities as well as for differ, uh, the different you know, pieces of, uh, uh, of green. Uh, and I think uh, uh, the, the, there is a wonderful example, if you really go back on the pricing, if you look at the solar yeah. and the way we have been able to bring down the pricing. So the pricing itself is, uh, would, would find its own place over a period of time. And uh, I think the, uh, this Davos, we will be able to take a lot, lot back in terms of uh, uh, energy, energy transition, green, sure. and the entire spa uh, uh, space of it. Just one or two more questions, Mr. Dinesh. How is green hydrogen going to play out for us going forward? I think it's very early days for us to really come and comment saying this is how it will play. Mm. I think that's going to be one more alternative. Uh, to a couple of options. Exactly. Right now, yeah. But I think I just want to add to what uh, CB mentioned. If you really look at it, ultimately, whatever is the solution we build, mm -hmm. it has to make commercial sense. And I think let us not forget that India has a market, mm -hmm. which I think has both, I would call it the scale, the size, and the need mm -hmm. to be able to implement cost-effective solutions. Mm -hmm. So the example which CB mentioned of, you know, bringing down the cost of power hmm. or even for that matter, public transport utilization of the uh, EV as an mm -hmm. example. So even if I look at green hydrogen or any new technology which is going to mm -hmm. create a more sustainable mobility solutions or uh, generation of uh, other uh, power mm -hmm. or as a case may be, I think the focus has got to be on commercial logic. So in the case of green hydrogen, I think we know that production can be done. Mm. Storage and distribution is still a challenge which we'll have to resolve. So if I go down that journey, I think we will see what happens in the next three to five years. But the starting point for us is making sure 
that there is a commercially viable solution and that exists today in many of the sustainable solutions which India is building. All right, but I'd like to thank you gentlemen very much uh, for joining us uh, today. You know, it is a key conversation on themes which really impact people across the world. Uh, the future of green, the future of uh, sustainable development, artificial intelligence, where that's going. And of course, the macroeconomic situation uh, with trade and concerns uh, when it comes to security in so many parts of the world. Well, that's it then on Left, Right and Center this evening. We'll be back at 9 p.m. tomorrow, bringing you the very latest with exclusive interviews from the World Economic Forum meet in Davos. Till then, goodbye.